Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. My guests this week are an entrepreneurial duo from London who are challenging the need for work mobiles and legacy telephone systems. They are Nick Brown and Ed Clayton, and they found a device with a Y, which is an app-based platform that provides you with mobile and landline numbers without the need for a second phone. Now, I'll let them describe it in more detail, but the value proposition is simple, both for users and employers. No more changing SIM cards every time you move country and no more clunky work phones. We talk about how they met, uh, why they started the company, the problem they set out to solve and the trials and tribulations associated with raising capital. Do check out their website at device with a Y. Dot com. But without further ado, this is the Wine Best Podcast. Nick Brown and Ed Clayton, welcome to the podcast. We're going to start with your backgrounds. Ed, how did you start your career? So I graduated back in 2004, computer science, and I'd done an internship at this company in North London called Softwire, quite a small company at the time. They're an awful lot bigger now. So I ended up working there for about six years. They're an independent software company. They do all sorts of work in all sorts of languages. So it's a brilliant sort of broad introduction to the world of software development. But after that, I briefly tried to found a startup, which didn't work out so well. It was an opportunity to meet Leo, who 10 years later introduced me to Nick. Then I ended up working for sports betting. Then I worked for a hedge fund. And then I moved to Vietnam for three years and became a freelancer. So I've done a whole heap of different stuff around software development. But I think it was that sort of early experience at Software there that I suppose really grounded me, I guess. And Nick, how about you? Where did you start out? My journey wasn't as planned out and really as orchestrated as Ed's. After university, I did a number of different jobs and then sort of fell into investment banking because I thought that was the right way to go and had a few years at Deutsche Bank, a few years at HBC. And then I thought, well, I like tech. I've always been really interested in, in mobile and mobile phone industry. So let, let's see what I can do there. Leo, who our other co-founder who, who isn't with us today, he went down into the mobile network and felt that there was a real opportunity with a mobile network in the UK that was struggling. So we acquired that and um, the rest is history and it's, it's led us to device. Well, we're going to introduce device in a minute. How do you think your, your skill sets complement each other? I think that Ed and I at the moment are doing a very good job of balancing, as most startups have this issue, and I think a lot of people could resonate with this, we're doing a lot of different jobs and we're wearing a lot of different hats. So I think the way that we seem to be balancing things out nicely between the three of us. Ed is the technical driver and, and drives all of the technical decisions. And I'm more of the customer facing and the business decision facilitator. And, and Leo ties it all nicely together with the network propping us up behind and the idea and the, the networking, as Ed just said, of, of taking us global, which he's very good at. So the three of us sort of dovetail nicely. Well, let's move on to device. I wonder if one of you could introduce it, what it does when you founded the company and why you founded the company. Ed, do you want to give your elevator pitch? I know you're very proud of it. Yeah, so I guess in a single sentence, a device gives you a second phone number on your existing handset. And what we mean by that, obviously that sounds kind of interesting, but not too exciting, I guess. What we mean by that is we're going to be replacing your work mobile, we'll be replacing your work desk phone, we'll be replacing sort of a soft phone on your laptop and bringing it all together so that your employees are contactable on one number, wherever they are and whenever they want to be. Probably worth taking a step back to when we founded it, very early 2020, just about the time, I guess, the pandemic was just starting to appear on the horizon. 
And we thought, well, okay, we can do a B2B product. No one really wants to pay for a second handset for their employees. So we'll take that away. We'll take away their second handset. They'll save a bit of money. They'll have a bit more control. And you know, we're going to go after businesses who currently use one of the big mobile networks and provide an employee with a second handset to make work calls on. Then, of course, everything sort of went up in the air. And it, we sort of realized that perhaps this is a bigger proposition, what with hybrid working, than we first imagined. So instead of just taking away their work mobile phone, perhaps we can take away their desk phone as well. And then we can draw it all together so that no matter where they are, you can get hold of your employee on a single number. It doesn't really matter whether they're working from home or from a coffee shop or from the office or from a train or, or from, I don't know, Vietnam. They are going to be reachable on that single UK mobile number or UK landline number globally. So we sort of pivoted to that, figured that there's this quite a big market for that. And then wonders about what the sort of the next steps were to get there. You mentioned it's a B2B business model. So what does your ideal customer look like and what is the addressable market? I think from an ideal customer point of view, it's it's anyone, first of all, in the UK, but then anyone globally who has their own business and has 20, 30, 40, 50 employees, usually sales staff, who they are currently giving a second iPhone or Android to with an expensive contract from one of the operators, with the insurance, with a replacement fee they have to replace when they, they get lost. And they're fed up of paying a lot of money with no control or visibility about what's going on, on across those numbers and handsets. They're not seeing whether people are working. They're not seeing how many calls they're making. They're not seeing how many messages they're sending. And they're not having that IP stored. So when these guys meet clients and they store their store these clients' numbers, they're not getting any of that. So a lot of money's leaving the door for their telecommunications, but they're not getting much in return. So that's really our ideal client. Yeah, I suppose I'd add to that, it was probably someone who doesn't use their phone an awful lot as well, because we pay by the minute and give them a fixed cost per month. But in sort of in terms of figures, we're assuming that, well, we can see from the Bayes figures, there's 16.8 million employees of SMEs in the UK and about 8.3 million employees of office-based SMEs. So yeah, if we take that as our sort of initial addressable market, that's 8.3 million people who perhaps have a work mobile or perhaps have to use their personal mobile for work, who would be ideal customers for us. Obviously, we're going to target, we are targeting certain sectors to start with to make it a bit easier. But I think our adjustable market is probably roughly 8.3 million in the UK as a sort of a short to medium term goal. And obviously, Nick mentioned going global afterwards. And there, these numbers are going to have an extra zero or so on the end. And where would you pinpoint the value proposition or what, what do you think the valuable part of your business is? Do you think it is your superior technology? Is it your ability to get to the market faster than anyone else? Or is it around branding? What do you think is the sort of core value proposition? I think it's twofold. I won't let Ed blow his own trumpet, but <laughs> our tech that he has built is fantastic. And it sounds simple to get an app on your phone, plug a mobile number or a landline into it and get it to ring, get the notifications, get the messages to come through, get your voicemails to pop up. It, it, it sounds simple, but a lot of people have struggled to even get an app on either of the app stores that actually rings reliably device rings all the time. The messages come through. It's the sort of thing you have on your phone that you don't have to worry about or think about, is it going to work? You just know it's going to be reliable. And Ed's done a fantastic job in that. The second part of why I think that we're going to win in the UK is that our contract with the mobile operator that we've got. So our commercials are unbeatable. Our prices are, are really, really good. And we, we're positioning ourselves to be that middle of the market niche where 
we're not going to be charging the £100 a month of, of some of the huge, big unified communications providers, but we're going to be in that niche market where people can rely on us and think this is something I have to have and this is something that my staff have to have. So I think it's those two strings there. Ed, would you add anything to that? I mean, obviously, our fantastic customer support that, uh, <laughs> that, that Nick has run uh, is he obviously refuses to blow his own trumpet. Um, that was the bit I was looking for. <laughs> but no, fundamentally, it, I mean, the, the, the contract that we have with um, the mobile operator is it's a barrier to entry for other startups. And it's something that means that we've got a defensible position and I guess a value proposition as well to our clients because our costs can be that little bit lower. I wonder when you were devising the business and when you originally thought that you wanted to go into business together, were there any sort of non-negotiables where you sort of wanted your line in the side, you wanted to create a business that did blank and stood for blank? And maybe, I don't know, you can answer it and by thinking about brands that you really look up to because they have that sort of sense of identity. Did you have the similar thing with device? Yeah, I think we did. I think both Nick and I, and actually Leo, to be fair, we're at a sort of similar position in our lives. We've all got relatively small preschool children. And one thing that I felt that I needed, and I think Nick in particular as well felt that he needed, was actually be able to spend some time with our families. So it's not much, but for example, on a Friday morning, I go swimming with um, my son. And I think on a, is it a Thursday lunchtime, you play football, Nick? Oh, it's not football, Ed. It's Little Kickers. It's an institution. And, um, it's uh, yeah, Isla is a diehard Little Kickers uh, fanatic. So um, yeah, we wanted to have because running this business, Ed and I are all hours of the day, and Leo all hours of the day and night on a Saturday, Sunday, dealing with all sorts of things. So we, I th- we thought that it was important to have that little block of time, two or three hours once a week, where we can say no, we're going to be spending this time with our family or, or dedicating that portion of the time because. It is easy running a startup just to forget about everything else and get swept away. So that was something that Ed and I have spoken about in the past, which we're happy we've we've done. Regarding brands that we look up to and other businesses that have sort of got in front of us, there's a company that was really I, I was made aware of more deeply than I did before by Ed, who used to work at Softwire, big tech development house. Their founders actually have a podcast on their website, uh, which I listened to, and they. I could resonate with a lot of what, what they did at the start with regarding to funding and their work-life balance and, and the way that they want their business to run and the way they look after their employees. So I, I think that they were a, a good business to emulate. We, I really like the way that they, they were run. Um, and Ed echoes that he had a great time working there. So yeah, they, they were one of the companies that I think Device would be lucky enough to emulate in the future. What does the competitive landscape look like trying maybe to target that 8.3 million people? Well, I, I touched on it earlier when I said about Ed's technology and that people have come before us and tried to provide a similar service to device and haven't been able to hit it home with the technology side, with the, the reliability. There's a few people out there that are doing or have tried to do a similar service, but there's no one standout brand or startup mm-hmm. or player, so to speak, in our area of the market that's trying to do what we're doing. We're a mobile first business, so we're not having people stuck to headsets on their Mac or PC. We're a mobile phone business first and foremost. So Ed may have a different view, but I I don't think there is anyone who's standing next to us trying to do the same thing and and we're racing for the same market. Ed, would you agree with that? Or you may may have a different view? Yeah. I mean, obviously, I don't think there's anyone who's in the UK at least doing exactly the same thing as us. But obviously, our customers are, well, they must be using something at the moment. So I guess we're kind of hoping that we'll be taking market share off legacy VoIP providers, perhaps off the big mobile companies. And then some of it might come from sort of older 
cloud communications providers, perhaps we want a better way of putting it. So although there's no one doing that single point of communications in the same way as we are, fundamentally, we are going to have to take customers from somewhere. People are using phones at the moment. So I think our competitive landscape is probably it's probably that. It's probably the older VoIP companies and the sort of legacy mobile companies. And we're sort of offering something that we hope is better and different and more powerful than anything that they are. Now, I know um, you're experiencing extremely rapid growth at the moment. Mm. Um, and I also know that you're exploring fundraising options. Now, I wonder how do you balance your time between fundraising and operating and, and sort of managing that growth of the core business? In a word, awfully. <laughs> um, it's tough, isn't it? Mainly because we, we've never done it before. Leo, Ed and I have never raised funds for a business before. We went into it quite naively, thinking that there was various routes that you had to go down and there was various routes that would be successful. One thing, probably to take a step back, one thing, I, and Ed and I had this discussion this morning, if we could do it all again and start when we started Device, we probably would have started raising money or looking to raise money, looking at the different options as soon as we had the first 10, 15, 20 people coming in paying us money because we, we, we really took it for granted. And we thought, oh, okay, well, I'm sure that everyone who, who starts a business gets clients on through the door really easily. And we did take it for granted and we probably should have gone and raised a smaller amount then to try and accelerate our growth a little bit quicker, but we didn't. But yeah, well, Ed and I have found it it's difficult, especially for Ed, because from a coding point of view, you need to go and shut yourself in a room and block out the world for three, four hours blocks at a time. But if you're doing due diligence for various investors, it, it's tough because everyone has to be involved in that. So it has been a, a struggle to get that balance. Yeah. I mean, the ways I've tried to do that, I suppose, um, so I do try and block out a few hours a day where there aren't meetings and calls. And I also try to shield the other developers from support requests and from anything to do with fundraising, because at least that means that they'll be able to focus on writing code, even if I'm not able to. So rather than have us all a little bit distracted, I'll just take as much of the hit as I have to while we're fundraising. Once it's done, back into writing code, back into managing the development team and um, sort of building out a great product. And I mean, what routes have you pursued so far? I mean, have you gone to, you know, shaking the can to your friends and family? Have you thought about, you know, angel investors? Have you thought about venture capital? You know, take our audience through how you sort of begin on thinking about raising capital. All of the above, isn't it, Nick? Yeah, well, the, the first route that we went down was the VC route, really. We went to a couple of VCs and we've had term sheets back from a couple of the VCs that we went to. We've had positive responses from, from everyone and we're under due diligence, financial due diligence from a group of guys now. We've also gone down the angel route, which we're pursuing as well. We've had some some funds committed this week, which is good. But we it was a bit haphazard. I, I think that there was no real structure to it. And I think that if I was going to do this again, and when we get to later rounds, I think that there's either people who are very good at fundraising or there's a structure to it that we, we probably could have followed a little better. But I think, as anyone will tell you, it, it might get easier when the when your results continue to go up and up and up and you're growing 15%, 20% month on month, the fundraising becomes a little bit easier because there's, there's less risk for the investor. So I think right at the beginning, we didn't really know which route to take. So we decided to take all of them at the same time. So there was no real plan, I think, is probably the best way to answer that. Going through each route, do they have different, I mean, they clearly have different sort of levels of due diligence. I wouldn't expect your friends nor family to give you a sort of large DD questionnaire. Yeah, exactly. So for, for SEIS Angel Money, we had a conversation on the phone with one investor and the money was in the bank two days later. Whereas with the VC route, we are 
currently in sort of the third week of providing historical profit and loss balance sheets, passports, utility bills, you name it, which is fine because as a VC, it's they're investing other people's money. So it's perfectly understandable, but it's a very drawn out process. So yeah, it's night and day between the two. And I mean, you don't need to go into details on, on the exact valuations, but how do you begin to value a business that is growing as fast as yours? That is, I suppose, in, in its infancy, really. Did you seek advice or did you put your finger in the air or what was the process on valuation? That was a really good one. I mean, I think the first um, VC we went to, we went with a much higher valuation than we actually ended up at as well. So it was a really interesting process how we sort of tried to come around to it. As I say, absolutely, first time around, finger in the air. What do we think it's worth? And I think, Nick, you went out to a few of your friends and family who had sort of involved in a bit more finance, didn't you? And sort of ask them to. Yeah, I mean, in the telecoms market and there's and the tech market in the UK, you can get a pretty good indication of what businesses are worth just on, on really what's happened in the market over the last 18 months. We've seen businesses in our area and space that have very, very small revenues, but have great tech. They've had huge valuations. So it, it, it was tricky. And it was really from the first VC we went to, we not chanced our arm. We didn't go in crazily high, but we went in with what we thought was a, was a good evaluation and they didn't blink. So it was sort of a, it was a situation where we thought, well, we, did we undercook that? But it, it's really on, on looking what's happening in the market and how strong we think our technical proposition is and what we think the revenues are going to be and what they are now. So it's um, we think we've hit a bit of a sweet spot. And I think the people that are investing in us at the moment are pretty happy with the valuation. And I suppose the next question is capital allocation. What would happen if you received your investment tomorrow? How would you allocate that capital? Do you have a sense of where the equilibrium of your business lies at the moment? Our product at the moment, people are coming to us. They're finding us on a very, very small marketing budget through Google and Facebook and et cetera, et cetera. So it would be a huge ramp up in the marketing budget would be the first instance. And also to give Ed a few more minions to work under him to help build some of the funky stuff that he wants to build is, is almost certainly the split the way it would go. Not sure we're allowed to call them minions anymore, Nick. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Presumably this is all in the proposition. You know, this is all quite clear in the deck, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Our financial for you know, we've got financial forecasts over the next 12 months, which show, yeah, how we're sort of aiming to build our sort of a B2C market. Uh, so we've got that secondary B2C market, which we've been cultivating of expats who want to be able to keep their UK number overseas without paying £1.40 a minute for it. And it's all hopefully quite clear in our proposition, hopefully clear in our deck and certainly clear in our figures that we're sort of building that market out to sort of then provide more funding for our bigger B2B product because we know this B2C market is there. Uh, it's bigger than we'd expected it to be, which is fantastic. Would you expect there to be a margin differential to B2C compared to B2B? You know, if you're owning the customer relationship, as it were, is there a step up? Or do you expect there to be a step up in margins as a result? B2C customers aren't going to use as many minutes. Their costs will be lower, but they're paying a lot less. Uh, or rather, their variable costs will be lower, but they're paying us a lot less money. And the sort of the overhead on customer support and dealing with them is perhaps a little higher than we'd imagined. So they are absolutely still profitable. But I can well imagine, or at least I believe, that when we start going to B2B customers, of course, each individual customer will be more demanding. But then maybe they're buying 10 or 20 or 30 lines from us all at twice the price. So they're not going to be 20 or 40 or 60 times more demanding. So I think that we'll find our B2B customers are more profitable in the long run. One thing I would say is that we, we didn't start a device with the idea of B2C involved at all. 
it's something that we've pivoted towards over the last four to six months because of Brexit and roaming charges that the operators are putting on their customers worldwide. People are coming to us. We're having a huge increase in people coming to us over the last month or so because you've got these guys who are in Spain, Portugal, Australia, Greece, you name it. And they're ringing us and saying, look, my operator is about to shut me off. They're about to cut me off because I'm out of the UK or they're going to charge me extortionate roaming charges. And these people have had these mobile numbers since the early 90s. They don't want to lose them. So they're porting them over to us. They then have the, the security and knowledge that they have their UK number wherever they are in the world. They can still get their banking passwords and, and people can reach them if needs be. And they have that peace of mind that they're not going to lose their, their UK number. And that for us, it was, we sat down with Leo and, and the three of us said that we, we have to act on this because I'm, I'm getting 10, 20 people a day saying they want to come over to our products. And it's not even why we built it. So the expat market is, is huge for us. There's over 5 million UK expats and a large percentage of them have a UK mobile, which they're, they're very tied to. And, and we seem to be one of the only shows in town that will help them with this issue. So that's why we've really gone to B2C. Let's look to the future and maybe, you know, five years down the road, where would you like to see device? What do you think the business looks like in five years time? So I guess the route to getting there is sort of we start off building out a bit more of this B2C product over the next few months just to get maybe up to 10,000 subscribers. That makes the business self-funding, which would be fantastic. Build out the B2B product, start building it out in the UK over the next few years. And once we're sort of big enough in the UK, maybe three years, four years from now, hopefully a little sooner, that's perhaps a time when we can start to look to cultivate relationships with overseas mobile network operators. So obviously here in the UK, we've got this relationship with R1, which is a great deal, and it's also a source of mobile numbers. In order to go and work in other markets, we're going to need to build those relationships out, or rather in order to work in other markets in a cost-effective way, we're going to need to be able to go direct to these other mobile network operators worldwide and sort of work with them to sort of help us build our product out more widely. Over in about four or five years' time, we'd hopefully have a few such relationships. I think emerging markets might be an interesting way to go. The US has a few companies doing similar to us. It's a much easier market to get into. So it's probably one we would leave for now, but perhaps looking towards Brazil, perhaps looking to countries like Vietnam uh, and perhaps bits of Europe as well. Uh, Australia is probably a big one too, because the language barrier obviously isn't there. And again, they don't have as much competition in our space. So try and build out into some of these selected markets to start with. And then in five years time, maybe we'll be in about four or five of them. And the product will be a truly global proposition by that point. Maybe even starting to think about exiting. It's not something that's really been on our mind yet, is it, Nick? But No, not really. I mean, we, we have the beauty of devices that we have users in nearly 100 countries all around the world today. Once we start plugging in local mobile numbers to where these guys are already using device it's an easy sale for us and we can build small points of presence initially in some of the countries that ed's just mentioned and, and start growing the business there um one of our non-execs is pushing device and brazil heavily to us because he's firmly the opinion that there's there's nothing in the market like it over there and that we, we should definitely go and take advantage so one thing that we don't want to do is is to run before we can walk so we want to cement our foundations in the uk build a really, really, really good business here. As Ed said, it doesn't take to get many more users so that when the business starts running itself and then look overseas, and that's where Leo really would come into his own because he's got great relationships with a lot of overseas operators. And so that's the path. Three to five years, I think that there should be people using device all around the world, and that's where we hope to be. Well, it's an exciting proposition. Now, I think final question to both of you. I'll go with you, Nick, first. What advice would you give 
to young entrepreneurs who perhaps have an idea and thinking about you know ways to pursue it, what advice would you give to them? I think it's important to do something that you're really, really, really passionate about. And I know that a lot of people say that and they can take it with a pinch of salt and say, well, I love my business. I love this idea. But it, it really, really does consume you. It's all we talk about. I speak to Ed more than I speak to my wife. I speak to Leo more than I speak to my mum. It's all you talk about. It's all you think about. I dream about mobile numbers and it just takes over your life. So I think that anyone starting a business has to really, really think, okay, this is me for three to five years and I absolutely love this product and I believe in it more than anything. Because right at the start, we had people, when we did, when we had no users, we had a scrap of paper. and We went out to a few people and they said, well, I don't really see the demand for this. I don't really know why I would use it. And you have to believe more than anything that this is the right thing to do. And now when we, we're seeing the people come to us every day, it's good. And the, the risk obviously does go down. But at, at the beginning, you're going to have your dark days. So you have to really, really have a good team around you. You have to all be on the same page and you have to really believe in what you're doing. Yeah, I think I would add a couple of things. They're probably a bit cliched, actually. Um, but one of them Nick's already touched on would be raise money before you think you need it. We thought, oh, we, yeah, we'll just go out. We'll get some money as soon as we need it. It'll all be fine. It'll come in instantly. And, yeah, we'll give away some of the business and everyone's going to be happy. And yeah, it actually turns out people are not as fast as you think they're going to be. They don't have the same sense of urgency you do. They demand things like letters from your accountant and all sorts of other exciting documents. So go and raise money well in advance of when you think you might need it and accept that maybe you're going to have to take a slightly lower valuation. But if you're doing it once you've got a little bit of revenue, then hopefully it won't be too bad. And the second thing is really cliche, which is of course the team you're working with. So instead of trying to surround yourself with people who are identical to you, find that sort of jigsaw of people. So Nick and Leo and I are all extremely different people. <laughs> that means actually we've got everything covered. And whilst I would obviously appreciate being able to bounce more technical ideas off those two, the fact is that if we had three technical co-founders, chances are we would probably wouldn't be doing anything like as well on customer support or on sales or on marketing. So sort of trying to find people who don't match your skill sets is worthwhile. And then you can always hire in early employees to sort of fill the gaps, fill in the gaps or to sort of bounce those technical ideas off. Which is what we actually did last week because Ed, Leo and I are all absolutely awful at marketing. Actually, no, awful, awful, awful is a bit harsh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be fair, we've built out this product with, you know, we've, we've done 11,000 MRR now. So, you know, we haven't, we're not completely awful, but we've hit our limit. We're hiring marketing bodies now because we know that there's much more experienced people out there than us. Right. Well, I think so. Do something you love, raise money early and hire your opposites. Nick Brown, Ed Clayton, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Really enjoyed that. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. And our guests this week, Nick Brown and Ed Clayton, the founders of Device. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like us and subscribe? The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.